Your community engagement work is intentionally multidisciplinary, integrating not only history and politics, but also food, art, fashion, and cultural heritage. In addition to educating and mobilizing community members about the UXO issue in Laos, our work aims to help the diaspora from Laos embrace the shared history of war and refuge it once shunned, turning shame and pain into a narrative of resiliency, cultural pride, and healing. Through this process, we aimed to cultivate a powerful network rooted in our shared history and our shared vision for the future, both in Laos and in the United States. Our work with partners on the ground helped build lasting bonds between unlikely allies, including government officials, veterans, and intergenerational leadership. My name is Renee Ya, and I am from the San Francisco Bay Area. I'm Hmong American, and I was born and raised here in California. I had the unique experience of being able to actually visit Laos, and in fact, it was my very first time. Um, I actually got my passport back in October. That was actually around the same time as I received my, uh, my notice that I was actually elected in as a board member. And I thought, what an amazing opportunity to be able to have my orientation. Being able to go back to my motherland was actually a really amazing experience. And before I go on, let me actually kind of set the scene. As the morning sun rises over the town of Pansavan in San Juan province, a gentle breeze rustles the leaves and the trees that line the streets. The air is crisp and cool, a reminder that autumn is in full swing. The town is just beginning to stir with the sounds of people waking up and starting their day. In the distance, there's a rumble of motorcycles and cars as people make their way to work and school. It's a peaceful and picturesque scene, the perfect setting for a day of reflection and contemplation. Every day that I was there in San Juan, there was something new and different to, to do. Being able to spend most of our time with our partners, MAG, um, or Minds Advisory Group, was really amazing because not only did we actually be able to go to sites where they were actively looking for unexploded ordinances or UXOs, we actually got a chance to be able to detonate one. And the idea that I can be able to have this impact of removing UXOs from the ground so that we can be able to give back agency to these communities it meant a lot to me. I would say actually, this is like a dream come true for me. Not only that, we were also able to visit Tom Pugh Cave where um, over 375 villagers were actually massacred by a rocket that the U.S. dropped. The reason why they dropped it was because they had gotten an intel that there were a Viet Cong hiding in that cave, which was untrue. And the idea that this cave 
was such a tragic event that is actually still um, a day of remembrance for the Lao government and the country. It was so devastating being there. And so being able to see firsthand just like the the lasting legacy of the American Secret War was really impactful. But it wasn't all just kind of sadness. We also did some really amazing work by meeting with our partners and talking about policy and talking about what a day in the life of their work looks like. Being able to talk about not only just the present, but also the future. And the idea that we could be able to have a, you know, bomb-free country and future for Laos is something that I would say is really important for me. And so being able to not only be there to see that work, but then also to be able to meet with one of the organizations there that actually works on the ground to help rehabilitate victims of these exploded ordinances, where they can be able to either help them with daily life things or being able to help them with giving them opportunities to have an equitable future for them, whether that's in going to school or whether that's giving them livestock or maybe even, you know, weaving or any of those other different like types of skills. It was really great to be able to see because it is really devastating. And also to be able to know that of the victims, or they call them clients, that they work with in Laos, Hmong people are actually considered an ethnic minority. But in San Juan in particular, 40% of their clients are Hmong. And the reason for that is because Hmong people oftentimes live in these rural parts of Laos. So I think ultimately for me, it was really amazing to be there, to be able to see not only the work that our partners are doing, that is really important. We'll also just be able to experience like the daily life of someone in a village, someone who may be trying to, for an example, take a scrap metal from these bombs and turn them into jewelry, turn them into spoons, you know, utensils and things so that they can be able to actually provide additional income to their families. And overall, like the village and I think those were really important to me. One of the things in particular that I wanted to be able to do, because San Juan is the province where my family is from um, earlier this year, and actually um, a little over a year ago, um, I lost two of my grandparents. One was my grandfather from my mom's side, and the other was my grandma from my dad's side. And I promised myself that I would actually take them home take them back to San Juan. I would say that was actually really impactful for me to be able to do that. Yeah. (laughs) So thank you, Legacies of War, for being able to allow me this opportunity as a board member to go there, meet with our partners um, who are doing really important work and, and be able to go home. In part one of our conversation, we got to reflect a little bit more on what we were able to experience and what our first reactions were when traveling back into the Southeast Asian region and what it was like stepping off the plane when we got to Laos. But in this conversation, in part two, we get to dive a little bit deeper on some of the experiences, emotions, and reactions we had. We are grateful for this opportunity 
to be able to do the work that we do and travel to the place that benefits the most from the advocacy and the education that we carry out. And we appreciate all of the support of our listeners, donors, friends, and community that has helped us propel our mission forward. These are the reasons why we continue to do the work that we do. And from the bottom of our hearts, it really does mean so much to us and to everyone else that are impacted by the lasting legacies of war. Yeah, and I think this conversation goes to show that we're still processing Mm -hmm. a lot, right? Yeah, we're still processing when we're talking right now. (laughs) We're still processing it all because there's just, there's so much feeling there's not, it's not even just the feeling it's, it's, it's lived experience that all of us, each of us went through that participated in this trip. And one of my biggest regrets, but will help inspire me for next year and in planning this and also seeking funding is that because of limited funding, because of the scope of the, the trip this year, we weren't able to bring our whole team or our board, as well as our, our, you know, all of our staff members to go to each province that we visited. Um, And so that, that is uh, something that we want to, you know, do in the future is for all of us to be able to see the rest of the operations, right? There's a huge amount of privilege that we have Mm -hmm. as Lao Americans and, you know, being able to navigate the way that we did get access to a lot of these different parts of Lao that even Lao people have not been, mm-hmm. right? Like hearing in Ponsavan that they've never been outside of Siangkwang province. And then I'm over here being like, oh yeah, and I'm going to go to, you know, Maxay <laughs> tomorrow. And it's so easy to just rolls off the tongue like that. But then also it's like, there are moments where I had to check my privilege and I had to process that. Can you all describe like what were, were some of your favorite provinces or like moments that you had during the, the trip? Uh, for me, it was, I mean, one of our first visits, I think the like maybe this first full day, my first full day in Vientiane, we went to the Cope Center, Cope Visitor Center. And that was such an amazing visit. It felt like, you know, finding validation, finding community in this UXO sector. Um, Again, I'm just so new. I've only been here a year and, you know, working from home, very isolated. And so to be in a place that, you know, every little part of Laos is a part of this story. You know, the land, the people, and this visitor center, the... The exhibits that they had were incredible Um, and just the enthusiasm behind the people that work there, the volunteers, um, the volunteers that have become staff there and also different like maps and ways of showing um, the number of zombies and the, the amount of land affected in ways that I hadn't seen before was really uh, inspiring and, and beneficial to, to the work that we do. And so I really got a lot out of that one visit and seeing different 
types of bonds, you know, firsthand and seeing our illustrations, copies of our illustrations um, there. And yeah, it was, it was a great first visit. I will also say getting to spend time with the Minds Advisory Group team in Xian Kuang is really amazing. And I think the demining site, I think that's probably the top of the ruins list. Um, actually getting to see a cluster bomb in the ground and seeing it detonated. And then the village visit in Bandapia where they make pieces of hope and jewelry and spoons and other things out of um, safely forged shrapnel. Getting to meet those people and I think visiting the elementary school there was probably the most emotional visit for me. I was just fighting back tears the whole time. And it was just like so many mixed feelings of, of hope. And I think that that was kind of the first time that like, I really felt complexity in that word. You know, these children are the, the faces of hope and just totally existing and playing in this contaminated land but you know living and thriving so those were some really amazing moments for me i think i me going to the initial um, moment of going to each province was one of like the moments that i would take away too because you just see like how different it is economically socially and like the landscape ge geographically as well. And like being able to see that, like this stark difference between like how economically more wealthy Vientiane is compared to Sien Kuang. Just how um, my advisory group was basically the huge, the biggest employer in that uh, city was also something that like, was like, wow, a, a demining organization is, the, the biggest employer of like that one province basically. And just, and like going to the South, like seeing a different, how people in the South uh, act or like compared to the people in the North or in Vingen, like all of them had the same sense of community, but like their way of interacting with each other, like being able to see, to see that in person was uh, very impactful to get to know the differences between like Northern, Central and Southern Laos. I will never forget. I think the first time I went back to Laos, like by myself, I remember looking out of the plane and seeing all the different craters, right? Like you can see from, from your window, like when we go into the North, there are craters everywhere. And at first they look like, little ponds that people might've built, which may be true, but also deep down inside, knowing the history, you know that those are also bomb craters. Mm -hmm. And then seeing that not only in the North, but in parts of Central and the South, it's like, this is a common theme. You know, one of the best experiences I had was being in Paksay and, and Jampasak specific. And when we go, went to go visit Paksong, which is where the Bulevan Plateau is, that's where all the coffee is being grown. And we were literally, I was there with Anna, we were walking on a coffee uh, farm, but there were 
red flags everywhere. We were visiting Norwegian People's Aid and those red flags indicated that there might be bombs there, that the detectors have detected, you know, metal in the soil, but there might also be bombs, <laughs> you know? And, um, and then there were also other indicators of where bombs have been removed. And it's literally right in the middle of where the, the coffee plants are. And I'm just sort of thinking to myself, wow, like there's no, there's no waiting around for all these bombs to be removed. Like people are growing, they're growing cassava trees, they're growing banana, you know, banana trees and moving along with their agricultural practices, despite having all these around. And so we're thinking like, when is it, what comes first? Do we remove the bombs first or do we just you know, continue to live life and then remove them. And I think it's both. You just have to live. You have to continue living because that's all you can do. And that was a really big moment because I think it goes to show that there are so many possibilities, but it's like, what if these bombs were moved? Can you imagine how many more coffee plants there can be? You know, we were also told that the coffee planting season was stopped because the, the bomb removal process, um, Norwegian's People's Aid, you know, they had to go in and block off a whole section. And they also uh, request, you know, that villagers relocate while it's happening. I think to, you know, talk similarly about what you were just saying, Alina, I think the normalization of living with UXO and working with UXO was probably the most shocking to me just because, you know, I'm coming from a place of like advocacy and education and like, this is like the number one issue. And then going to Laos and like Anna said, like in seeing Kwong and Pansavan, this is the number one. Demining Minds Advisory Group is the number one employer in that city. Um, and you know, these deminers, this is just their nine to five, you know, this is their, this is just how they provide for their families. And, and people said that they are just, you know, they don't really have other options. They're just going to farm the land. And with that comes the risks. And that's just what it is. And that's, what they have been forced to accept. And so that was maybe one of the most shocking things to me. Um, another thing was visiting the Quality of Life um, Association. And that was also, you know, I'll add that to one of my favorite visits. Um, but we all sat in, on it um, around a table with to me, the executive director. And he just talked to us very frankly about what they do, what they see in their work. Um, and a lot of what they do is providing assistance to victims of UXO and their families. In addition, they also support people living with disabilities in Laos. And like they are a true trailblazer in accessibility for people living with disabilities. And I think that I even said out loud, like, this is like, as an American sitting here, I have never been more aware of my privilege. Yeah, I think um, what will never sort of uh, stop being shocking are the stories, hearing those in person. 
and meeting face to face with victims and survivors. Um, like uh, when we were in the South, in Sepuan specifically, I, I do, I, I want to remember his name as Pa Yongkam and his son Ali shared his story with our team on discovering uh, that his son, his eldest son, um, came into contact with a uh, unexploded bomb when he was trying to find uh, bombs. I mean, this was at the time where, you know, there was no mind risk education on the, the dangers of dissembling these bombs. He His son was trying to find copper inside the, the bomb to sell at the market and to, to make a living that way. He was saying that his son used to do it all the time. Like it wasn't something that was, that was, uh, that was news to him, but after doing or putting, pulling apart a bomb, um, it went off and immediately killed his son. And he got the news that his son passed away and that they wouldn't move, they wouldn't move the body because there was a hospital way too far. It's like 50 or so kilometers away. And uh, it was, you know, it was gonna be difficult to get anyone there. There was no like ER system. Um, and so he had to walk to go see his son. And they said that the village kind of left his son's body there because, you know, there was so much blood and everyone was afraid to move the body. And that crushed, I don't know, like I just, uh, I just sort of uh, imagined, right? Like the fear of being somebody's parent and not knowing how to get to your son and just walking, just being like, I'm just gonna walk towards that direction because that's the only thing I can do. And he said he walked for 10 hours to get to where his son's body was. What was so inspiring from Ali and his, his dad was that they shared that they hoped that no country has to go through this. You know, we were kind of asking them what, what are their hopes for their province or Laos in general. And they said, you know, if the whole world can talk about these bombs, then that should be enough. Like the, that the world should try to get rid of weapons like this, that no country has to go, should go through horrors like this. I never heard those stories before, Lena. <laughs> so I'm glad we're doing this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. And I think, I don't think we've had the opportunity to even like write all the, everything down. No. Right. Cause like, mm -hmm. this is what I've heard, right. When we were sitting there, but Anna, you know, you were also there as well. And Sarah. So we have all these different um, perspectives of the conversation mm -hmm. that we should all write down because you know, like for me too, I was like, I was bawling and I, I might have missed <laughs> some things that were said because like my headspace was just blank, right. At, at some of the parts of the conversation, but I feel like others who were there might've, you know, and just looking around at like Halo, they were, their eyes were just like wide open because I don't know. <laughs> I don't, I just like, I was just noticing too, like around and everyone was just sort of like, Wow. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't think we've even heard parts of the story that they're like, he was really going into a lot of detail. And that was because Sarah was, was so good mm -hmm. at um, asking questions 
You know, she, mm-hmm. she didn't even ask like, what happened? Tell us, like, she didn't start it that way. She started off with Paul Young come. Can you tell us what were some things that your son loved to do before he passed away? And that question got him to a place where he, he remembered his son in a very like loving way and was able to, to talk about the story in a way that didn't come from a place of, of fear. I am just thinking about like what Paul Young Kam said and like some details that you didn't mention. I remember him describing like when he first saw his son like like very heavily injured. I think he said that he his son was still alive when he saw his son, but he knew that there was absolutely no way that they were able to like bring him to a hospital or get him to be able to recover. And like how he was just describing him like going into the the crater and like dragging his, his son out and just like watching his son until like his last breath. Uh, Paul Young Kam went back to the place where his son died for the next two years, like almost every day, just walking. And that really hit me that it, it was very hard to lose his last son, I mean, first son. And and who knows how many other stories similar to his. Many of these victims and like family of victims still just are grieving to this day. And they can't see that they're still uh, people who still care about them because their their mind is so focused on what they lost, and they definitely have the the right to mourn, the right to be sad, and I really wish that there was like more support. What were some of the um, you know the experiences you had with with speaking Lao or trying to communicate in Lao? And are there any phrases that really stood out to you that you that you used or you think is you know very important to know when going to Laos? I think I'm the only one on the team. I am. I don't think I know. I'm the only one on the team that doesn't speak Lao, and. You know, my mom, she came over to the U.S. when she was 16 and just really, it was, you know, Lao culture was very minimal in my household. The only time I would hear it would be when my family from Laos would call at midnight and, you know, she would talk to them um, because we were really isolated in North Dakota. And so it wasn't until very recently that started teaching me a little bit of Lao once a week and you know she built out these lessons and um, leading up to the trip I definitely saw the importance of (laughs) you know obviously of speaking the same language um, and was just so frustrated a lot of the time that I couldn't communicate especially you know with my family that's there it's so frustrating and I think Sep Lai you know, it was definitely something that I said the most for sure. Um, and I think it just speaks to how delicious 
everything is because I said it so much. For me, I I know how to speak Lao and I I I speak it pretty fluently, but going to Laos, it's it's always like I know that I don't know everything. <laughs> like going back, it's like sometimes I, I I'm also frustrated that I can't like convey what I want to say about our work in the Lao language. And it and I guess like that's something that I feel like all of us are also trying to navigate as well. You know, I want to give a shout out to to the folks who are on the trip with us, including Aili. Um, and Aili Pocha is uh, the executive director of the Immigrant Refugee Community Organization in Portland. Shout out to Aili. <laughs> but Aili uh, mentioned you know, as being part of the diaspora, he is Hmong, um, grew up in Laos and then moved to the U.S. But when he was there, he just automatically was able to speak Laos with such ease. And he was like, I don't even remember that I could speak this much Laos. And I was oh like, oh, my gosh, that's really amazing. So a lot that was of like what, a Lao person in Laos, like yeah. his accent. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and it was a joy to see because I could see that automatically click for him and he mm-hmm. would speak Lao. And then we went to Ponsavan and Siem Kwang, you know, there's a lot of Hmong um, communities and he just immediately changed to Hmong. And I was like, this is amazing. You're just, you're just <laughs> like a like multilingual genius. Um, yeah. But I saw that also with our other board member, Kamsong uh, Siri Mani Vong and she said that she wasn't comfortable speaking uh, Lao in the U.S. and grew up, you know, speaking English even to her parents because she came and she left Lao at such a young age. But then when she went back to Lao, it was like a whole other person. We were making, we were like saying little jokes because we were like, oh my gosh, she's now Uesan, you know, because <laughs> the nickname that a lot of like the local uh, staff was calling her. She came became a whole new person. So that was maybe my favorite thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, even with um, our other board members, Monica and Monica. Renee. Yeah. Renee, yeah, you know, they both are Hmong, grew up in the U.S. And going back to Sien Kwong was 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 a huge homecoming, but also mm-hmm. the language, like just seeing the interaction with the MAG staff. Um, that was such a that was so cool. And so cool. Getting to see, too, how much of the local population makes up the workforce. That's what we want to see more of. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, so language was key. Um, And, you know, I think in closing, I would just want to reflect with all of you on if you could describe to people the beauty of Lao. Yes, I will also say that it had been 10 years since I'd been there. And like it had changed, you know, it had changed so much. in great ways, good development. And I almost am hesitant to say that you should visit because it's, it's such a sacred, such a sacred place, you know, when you find that secret and you're like, yeah, it's don't come here. Like it rains so much here in Washington that you don't need to come, but it actually is an amazing place. Um, that's kind of how I feel about Laos. I think Anthony Bourdain said something similar. Yeah. Um, but it is just this sweet spot of 
still like very remote feeling, but yet easy to travel, amazing food, but yet very inexpensive. And it's just like at the center of all the sweet spots for sure. Mm. Laos is a connector. Um, yeah. What did Sarah say? Laos is like the breadbasket. Breadbasket. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I was like, or the rice basket, the dip cow. <laughs> <laughs> We're the only ones that eat sticky rice as a meal. Right. <laughs> yeah. Say it louder. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I think this was a really beautiful conversation, ladies. Thank you all so much. Thank you for tuning in to Thipcow Talk, brought to you by our innovator sponsors, Minds Advisory Group and Article 22. Please continue to listen and follow us exclusively on Spotify and our anchor page. In this program, we hope to amplify the voices that tell the stories that we want to preserve for future generations to come. The theme music used in this podcast is by the Lao Jazzanova Band from Vientiane Laos, and the illustrations are created by our very own Anna Pomachantan. To learn more about Legacies of War, please visit us on our website at www.legaciesofwar.org or on our social channels at Legacies of War. And please share on all platforms with your friends, your loved ones, and your communities. Thank you for joining our Sticky Rice Squad for Thipcall Talk.